What's up, guys? Welcome back to the MMA Meeting Let's Talk with the Weasel Podcast, where we talk all things MMA, and I hope you guys are having an amazing day. If you guys want to catch any extra podcast episodes, as well as other kind of content, you can go and join as a patron or a member of the channel. Not too much has been going on in MMA for like the last two weeks or so, mostly that celebrity boxing card, and what I did find interesting was Travis Brown's comments about fighter pay. That was the main thing that stuck to my head, and to be honest... This may be a bit unpopular, I will explain a little bit further, but I do agree with him somewhat. I agree with him with the fact that fighters, they do complain more than taking action at the negotiation table. And like I've been saying for such a long time, when a fighter pulls out of one of their fights, another one wants to jump in right away, even for less pay. And that's ultimately one of the biggest devastators to a fighter's ability to negotiate for more money. In that aspect, I do agree with Travis Brown, but I don't disagree with him saying that the fighters, he didn't say straightforward that the fighters are making what they deserve, but he said for himself that the organization paid him what he asked for, if not even more sometimes. Now, we can all understand that, and a lot of times the organization could be a bit generous by throwing you more money on top of what you asked for, but most of the time, what fighters ask for is nowhere near the amount to what they deserve in the sport. We'll put this in a scenario. A fighter who is worth, let's say, 500000 a fight. Because he doesn't have the proper business skills, as most fighters don't, they don't really get into the sport to be business savvy. They get into the sport to fight. That's why they need good managers. Let's say they ask for 100000 a fight. The organization should be like, okay, I know you're worth. You're asking for that much? Okay, I'll give you 100000 And at times, I'll give you a little bit of a bonus. That's what it seems like is going on for guys like Travis Brown and probably most of the fighters. They ask for a certain amount of money. The organization gives them more, knowing that they are probably worth more than they asked for so at the end of the day the organization is saving money or should i say keeping more money from each of their fights conor mcgregor habib these guys generate the money that they deserve conor is saying that he makes like 50 million dollars a fight or whatever it is there's numbers going around that says habib makes like 20 to 30 million a fight that seems to be pretty correct when you compare it to what the high tier boxers get and this all comes down to pay-per-view buys that's why the fighters are the biggest issue right now of negotiating for better pay are still francis agano and john jones Either they are overshooting their shot, going from 500000 a fight to asking for $50 million a fight. Of course, no organization is going to agree to that. But, like I said before, man, other fighters are going to take the opportunity for less pay. So, on one hand, I do agree with Travis Brown, but on the other, I think he's not seeing where the fighters are at the moment. And remember, Travis Brown was fighting mostly before the Reebok era where there was a bunch of sponsors. Sponsors paid these fighters a lot of money, man. They used to pay them a lot of money. Look what happened with Anderson Silva when he fought Tito Ortiz. He had an Adidas sponsor during that fight. You don't think he got millions of dollars off of that? And that is why these MMA fighters want to get into these celebrity boxing matches. Even some of the highest caliber fighters in our sport want to transition and go up against YouTubers in the ring. It's about the money. And how can you blame them when it comes to that? They come into the sport in order to make a living, in order to make some sort of career, and they don't have a long career at it. Usually fighters are done 36 to 38 years old. It's been going up a little bit more as more modern fighters have gotten. But in that short amount of time, that little window that they have, you can't can't fault them for going into these celebrity boxing matches so they can get these big sponsors during fights so they could get the pay that they deserve and honestly most of the time against easier competitors so as we see these older mma fighters transition into boxing and we see the amount of money that they're able to make we're going to start to see more younger in prime mma fighters want to transition as well and we do have numbers of what they made out of the holyfield and belfort fight Evander Holyfield was guaranteed $500,000 against Vitor Belfort, and then he gets pay-per-view points on top of it. We don't know what the pay-per-view buys look like, but it's to be expected not only from the purse and pay-per-view points, but even probably from sponsors and stuff that Holyfield should have made over a million dollars that fight. Belfort 
was guaranteed 400000 which is actually roughly similar to what he was making in the UFC. But this is also with pay-per-view points and sponsors. I could only imagine that Vitor made over a million dollars as well. Anderson Silva was promised 500000 Tito Ortiz 300000 And all of these guys, all four of these fighters, got pay-per-view points. Even Tito and Anderson. It's different, man. So I understand that it does hurt the sport of boxing, that these are the kind of fights that are drawing the most attention. But I can only see it from the fighter's aspect as to what's going on in their careers and their lives where they have to take these kind of fights. Now, these guys are older. They're former retired fighters. But it drips onto the active fighters like the Jorge Mazadels of the world, the Nate Diaz's of the world. Like, these guys are going to play around with the idea at least a little bit. At least they're going to have to think about it. As in this day and age, money fights are the meta of MMA right now. It's the same reason why Nate Diaz and Vicente Luque want to fight each other. Luque is one of the top contenders of the welterweight division. And Nate Diaz, although not a contender, he keeps drawing these guys to fight him. He drew Leon Edwards to fight him. Now he's drawing Vicente Luque. Okay, it's because of the opportunity to make money. Not only dollars, but the publicity that you get from fighting one of the Diaz brothers gives you more of an opportunity to make more money down the line. The money that you get out of an ADS fight is more important for these fighters than actually putting their hand out there to fight for the title. They'd rather fight Nate Diaz than try to secure a title shot. That's why you know what state this sport is in right now. Now, frankly, I do think Vicente Luque will absolutely win the fight against Nate Diaz. I don't think it will be that close, to be honest. Even if Nate can catch Vicente Luque at some point the way he caught Leon Edwards, Luque is made out of granite. That guy's chin is out of this world. The strikes he took from Wonderboy, the strikes he took from Tyron Woodley, of all people, who's probably the hardest hitter in welterweight's history, is very hard to see Luque get dropped unless he takes a plethora of damage over the course of his career. And I was actually very surprised that Nate was up to fight Luque as well. He said, okay, when are we going to fight? It seems like Nate has understood that he is the A side to these fights now. Before when he was calling out Conor McGregor and these bigger names in the sport, he was looking at it as he had to be the B side in order to make the money that he deserves. Nick Diaz was doing the same thing back in the day. Remember when Nick refused to fight Robbie Lawler and now he's fighting Robbie Lawler because they understand now that they are the A side. They are some of the biggest stars in the sport. They can draw their own money. They don't need other fighters to do it for them. They just need a good competitor that can put on a good fight for them. That's all they need at this point. The Diaz brothers are understanding their market value better than most fighters are. Better than even champions. The Diaz brothers are far smarter than people give them credit for. And to be honest here, man, how strange is this year? Look at all the things we had going on. We had Conor going after celebrities outside the cage. We had Vitor Belfort box Evander Holyfield with a YouTuber takeover boxing essentially with Tyron Woodley one of the greatest welterweights of all time former champion in the UFC lose a boxing match and then beg for a rematch against said YouTuber we had Tudor Ortiz become a politician we had female fighters turn to OF Joel Zialdo turning back the clock on his career. Now, he has never been a bad fighter. I'm not saying that. I've been actually one of the people who have been saying for a long time that Aldo's far better than people give him credit for. He's only losing to the best guys, and he looks good in his fights when he wins. There's a clear difference now with his switch to the Navy boxing, I think, in uh, Brazil. Aldo is getting better. Look at the Aldo that fought Hanato Moicano and Jeremy Stevens. Compare that Joel Zialdo to the one that fought Pedro Munoz. He's better now than he was back then. Is he prime Aldo? No. But man, is he competitive with this division. I can really only see three fighters at the moment that could beat Joel Zialdo. I can see, of course, Pietro Jan. I can see maybe TJ Dillashaw and maybe Corey Sanhagen. And it's a clear difference between what people thought of Joel Zialdo when he came down to 135. Yes, he had a close fight with Marlon Moraes, but he got a quick title shot in which he was 
was dispatched in. A lot of people believe that Josie Aldo was gifted that title shot because there was no way he would ever build his way up to that opportunity. And here he is doing very well on his path, trying to get back at Pietrian. When he came down to 135 and lost to Pietrian, everybody threw him aside. Even analysts, quote-unquote experts, writing off Josie Aldo after that loss. Heck, even Habib Nurmagomedov himself, the GOAT in many people's eyes, has taken a similar narrative against Aldo. There's no shame in losing to Pietrian. He's much younger, both in age and fight years, and the guy is so well-rounded. It doesn't discredit Josie Aldo for losing to him. It just gives more credit to Piotr Jan for what he did to Josie Aldo. And I don't know why this keeps happening to him. Every time he loses to one of the best fighters in the world, it becomes very easy to write him off completely. Far more than other fighters. It might have been because of how great he used to be. One of the greatest status, number one pound for pound, down to just a contender that could seem like a fall from grace to a lot of people. When we have fighters like Darren Till, who lose time after time, yet people still believe in his ability. It might be because he's a quote-unquote prospect. He's a younger guy. He can evolve in the game and get better and it possibly could be the age factor that Aldo is a bit older but I don't think so this narrative about Aldo falling from grace used to happen back when he lost to Conor McGregor happened when he lost to Max Holloway as well and Aldo was not old at those times Aldo was 29 years old when he lost to Conor he was 31 when he lost to Max Holloway it could be because of the way he lost to Holloway and Conor but then you think about him losing to Volkanovski two and a half years ago and he did not compete to the best of his abilities in that fight. He said himself that he fell flat. That happens to fighters man. You can't be perfect in every single fight. You can't fight to the best of your abilities every single time. You're going to have off days just like anybody else. But people chopped it up to oh Aldo is over the hill. So no matter how he loses it seems like unless he's putting on some barn burner war like he did against Chad Mendez. Let's say he lost that fight. That seems to be the only kind of circumstance where people will say oh Aldo isn't over the hill. If he doesn't put on a good performance, or if they get absolutely dominated in a fight, or knocked out in 13 seconds, where stylistically they are very well matched up against the opponent, it's just so easy to write this guy off. It doesn't happen to other champions the same way it's happened to Josie Aldo throughout his career. But here he is, persevering every single time, getting better, putting on good performances, and doing what he needs to do to rejuvenate his career. And how can you not be happy for Aldo? One of the greatest fighters of all time, and only building on his legacy. If he goes and claims that bantamweight title, and proves all the doubters wrong. Do you know how crazy that would be? You would have to talk about Josie Aldo the way you talk about John Jones and GSP. Essentially, there's only the fact that he lost much more than those guys did, but you gotta look at the competition that he would have to beat in order to be a double champion in the featherweight and bantamweight divisions. Harder divisions than when GSP fought in. And I would argue even what John Jones fought in for the main reason that John Jones in the light heavyweight division when light heavyweight was popping, had a lot of older fighters. Had a lot of previous generation fighters that he had to clean up. I've talked about it many times. The newer fighter's job is to play janitor and clean up the old mess. And once he fought his own generation of fighters, he had a much harder time with them. And then when he fought the next generation, he pretty much outright got beat. Whereas Jose Aldo, he's going into these fights where he is the older fighter. He is the previous generation. He is that tough old mess that's giving these janitors an issue of cleaning up. He has to beat the newer modern fighters. That is why I have to regard Jose Aldo as top three amongst the names of John Jones and GSP. Because he is doing something different than those fighters did. Now that's only if he gets the bantamweight title. I don't think that's going to happen I think it's a very low chance of him actually beating Piotr Jan it's possible he did win the second round against Jan and showed really good Muay Thai really good leg kicks but after the second round the fight was getting dicey for Jose Aldo I don't think a rematch will change much to be honest but we'll see man that's why we're riding this journey with Aldo again to see how much better he gets and how high he could climb in this bantamweight division oh and that message that has been going around that apparently Jose Aldo responded to Habib I don't think that was real there's no source to it or anything it 
it does sound like something Jose Aldo would probably say, but I don't think he has actually responded to Habib's comments about him. And speaking of fighter pay, when we talk about the female fighters turning to OF, that shows you how little fighters are getting from their career, that they have to turn to other sources of revenues in order to get what they deserve. Jessica Andrade was the main topic going on for a week about the money money she was making from OF. She says she's been able to make enough money to pay for seven months rent in advance and she said it in a way like she's never been able to do that before and this isn't just some regular fighter who came in and out of the UFC we're talking about one of the greatest female fighters of all time we're talking about a three division contender a former strawweight champion multiple time title challenger that's how you know and you got Paige Van Zandt I know she left the UFC but making a lot on her site as well I hear Beck Rawlings is making a bunch too and Beck Rawlings isn't at the same caliber as a Jessica Andrade that's how you know Oh, that reminds me. I gotta renew my subscriptions. But let's go right to the questions here. So we're gonna start with Patreon first, where I usually answer five from here, five from the members, and then I just go all in on the public questions. We're gonna start with Jesse Griffin with a very interesting question. Hey, Weasel, best MMA content channel. Thank you so much, man. With Conor McGregor only having two fights left on his contract, what do you see him doing after? And what does it mean for the UFC if he decides to fight elsewhere? Or does he sign another giant contract with him? One or two things are going to happen, most likely. He will sign with the UFC again. I don't see him signing with any other MMA organization, or he'll just straight up retire after his contract expires. But if he does decide to re-sign with the UFC, you bet he's going to try his hand in some boxing fights before he re-signs. You know how the organization is with letting their active fighters move over into other combat sports, especially combat sports that generate a lot of money. Connor is going to look to expand probably on his own promotion, get some bigger opportunities to fight guys like Manny Pacquiao and maybe even Canelo Alvarez if he's up to it, like other boxers perhaps even other celebrities, and make a bunch of money in that sport as well. But in terms of MMA, I don't see Conor going anywhere else. He has all the rivalries in the UFC. He has all the money fights in the UFC. There's no point for him to go anywhere else. They've got a Julian Tube. Yo, what's good, Weasel? Everything, man. Hope everything's good with you too. How do you see Covington versus Usman fight playing out? I can see Colby's wrestling neutralizing the threat of the takedown from Usman, giving Colby a huge advantage compared to Masvidal. And who do you think has the best chance of dethroning Usman? Yes, Colby can potentially neutralize the wrestling, but that goes for both parties in my opinion, which can ultimately make it another striking match, a boxing match for the most part, but Colby's going to have to throw a lot more kicks in this one. A lot more kicks to the head and a lot more kicks to the body. He is a southpaw. He's going to have that natural opening. And Usman isn't much of a kicker. He will throw some teeps here and there. But nowhere near the same kind of dexterity that Covington has. Seems like Covington is a more athletic fighter. Whereas Usman is just far more powerful. The power discrepancy between these two is... The biggest gap out of all aspects of the fight. Their wrestling is comparable. Their striking technique somewhat is comparable. Their pace is comparable. It's that the power is completely one-sided for Usman. Usman hits Covington, he hurts Covington. Covington hits Usman, one shot's not going to do enough to hurt him. He's going to hit him with multiple in order to cause that sort of damage. And we saw in the first fight, Usman could literally walk through Covington's left hand and catch him with his right and drop him. It's that far of a difference when it comes to power. And Usman these days is hitting even harder because the form of his punch are getting much better his boxing is getting better his timing is getting better and it's really the straight punches not so much the looping punches his overhands and hooks aren't as clean as his jabs and straight rights are so what does that mean Covington's gonna have to get off the center line all the time he cannot sit on the center line he cannot pull away from punches that's what got him caught in the first fight 
Covington likes to pull away, move his head back, and you can't do that against Usman, who's so much longer than him. You do not want to pull on a longer opponent's punches. It just doesn't work out. You want to get off the center line, lateral movement, pivoting, bobbing and weaving, slipping. That's what Covington is going to have to do in order to land his shots and get away from Usman's. And here's an aspect of the fight that didn't play out the first time, and I believe it will be hugely beneficial to either fighter who actually incorporates this in their approach. Fake takedowns or at least set their strikes up with takedowns. That is something I did not see that much in the first fight. You know both these fighters are wrestlers by trade. They're not much Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu artists at all. I mean, whenever they even get positions to get the hooks in on the back, to sink in submissions or anything like that, they never take the opportunity to do so. They always control the position just like a wrestler will. So you also know... Both fighters should know that the opponent will defend a takedown attempt just like a wrestler. They'll probably sprawl on things. They'll probably throw the wizard into things. And that can open up a lot of openings for the fighter. So each fighter's wrestling skills can quote-unquote neutralize each other. It would also be better for either fighter to look at the opponent as a wrestler as well to pick out those wrestling openings. It's pretty weird for a wrestler to think of a fight that way. Where they have the wrestling skills, that's what separates them from most of the pack. But eventually when they face that wrestler who can match their skills, that's when the fighter should be looking at the fight to include an anti-wrestling game plan or techniques that way. They have to think more like an anti-wrestler now. A wrestler thinks like an anti-wrestler. That's a key aspect of that fight. I just don't know if it's going to happen though. There could be many opportunities to fake a takedown and go in for an uppercut. Fake a takedown, get the opponent to sprawl and then come up with a flying knee or something in that manner. They could fake a low single drop in the opponent's levels and then that fighter can create angles on that opponent, getting in a deep outside foot, even pivoting around them. There's so many openings that both Colby and Usman could do against each other if they approach the fight in the same manner. But I will have to say that Colby taking this approach will be more beneficial than if Usman took this approach because Colby, as we know, has the better footwork. He seems to be a bit faster. Then go to Daniel Sandoval. I don't know much about him, but is Patty Pimblett legit? A lot of people ask me this question. I know the UK fans love this guy a lot. I like him too. He's a very fun fighter. I love watching this guy fight. But if I'm going to be honest here and look at him objectively, he's scrappy, he has a good chin, he has good jiu-jitsu, and he goes to war with you. He brawls it out on the feet. But I don't see him getting that far especially with the way he's been fighting. There's a lot of missing pieces to his game to be a successful 155 fighter. I mean, you have to remember what weight class he's fighting in. The top 10 is murderer's row. The guys outside the top 15 are insanely skilled as well. This division has no easy pickings. I mean, even his debut opponent was putting it on him. And I'm going to be honest, Luigi is nowhere near the kind of caliber who's probably ever going to make a top 10. Something scare me about when Paddy fights. I mean, he's extremely durable, but he keeps his chin up very high in the air. I don't care how good your chin is, man. If you're going to get cracked by the guys in this division, fight after fight is only going to soften that chin his punches are not tight at all his kicks are not the most calculated his takedowns aren't the greatest as well he has good jiu-jitsu but how is he going to get it there against guys who the lightweight division is notoriously known for having very good takedown defense in general biggest issue i see with patty pimblet one of them is where he keeps his chin up very high in the air but at the same time he misjudges distance and i can easily see patty getting countered coming in or they're aggressive and he's not able to land his own shot misjudging the distance now that is just me judging patty off of what I see from him right now. In terms of thinking about what he will look like in three to five years, it's almost impossible to really know. We don't know how he's going to progress. We don't know where he's going to get better at. We don't know if he's going to develop insane wrestling skills or he's not going to really progress in wrestling that much. We have no idea how he's going to look in three to five years. But what we do know is how he looks right now and who is potentially in front of him. Remember, like I said, we are in the lightweight division. 
There's guys outside the top 15 that I do not think Patty is nearly ready for right now. And he's not that far off from fighting them, given his popularity. If he fights Matheus Gamrot, that fight's a wrap. If he fights Goran Kutalaze, that fight's over. Maybe even Amin Azaitar. He's not going to be able to brawl with Amin Azaitar and potentially can't even take him to the ground. Or if he could go up against veterans like Drew Dober. I mean, these fights are very tough for his skill set. There are good fights for him. Maybe Mark Casey would be a good fight. I don't know how much they want to do two guys from the UK fighting each other. A fight with Matt Frivola would be interesting. And right now, I'm just looking down the UFC fighters of the lightweight division. I mean, Bobby Green, that's a tough fight for him. Alex Hernandez would be a good fight, I think, but he can neutralize probably the wrestling, and he's sharper with his striking, but Patty's a lot scrappier. He can make it work in an Alexander Hernandez fight, but that is a fight that would be competitive. So at the same time, I understand he's going to get much better than he is, but at 26 years old, for a fighter who just started to develop striking skills, like I said before, man, there's a lot of missing pieces, and I don't know if he's going to be able to cover all of them in that amount of short time. Now, a lot of people draw comparisons to Justin Gaethje when he made his debut, but wait, there's a big difference here. Who did Patty Pimblet fight? Luigi Vendramini? Justin Gaethje fought Michael Johnson. The only comparable thing with Justin Gaethje's debut to Patty Pimblet's is the fact that they both had exciting debuts. In terms of skill and experience and all that stuff, Patty does not compare to Gaethje. The skills and the feet are not close. The wrestling is not close. People have to remember that Justin Gaethje, even though he doesn't use it offensively, he is a highly credentialed wrestler and has some of the best takedown defense in the lightweight division. Patty Pimblet so far has only showed great Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Petty's not the greatest puncher, he's not the greatest kicker, he's not the greatest with knees and elbows, he's not the greatest in the clinch, and he doesn't have great wrestling either. Whereas Geishi always has some of the best leg kicks in the sport. He was much more precise with his punches, he was a much better wrestler than Patty was. Now, they were almost the same age when they made their debut, but it's still a bit of difference when it comes to experience and skills. But as of right now, what I can see from his skills, not the greatest judgment for his future. He's gonna put on some fun fights though. Then we go to Ronan Griffin. Hey Weasel, new member, love your videos. Just wondering how you see Shikaze doing against the top five at Featherweight. Let me see here, top five. So against Kelvin Cater, I think he beats Cater. Light kicks too much, distance work. He can put a high output on Cater as well, who doesn't seem to do the best moving backwards and act as a counter puncher. I think he also beats Korean Zombie. Very similar to be honest, except for the fact that Korean Zombie does counter very well. It's just that Shikaze has a very good measurement of distance. It'd be interesting to see if Korean Zombie could take Shikaze to the ground. If he does, then Korean Zombie will win the fight. But on the feet, I don't think KZ has much for Shikaze. I think he beats Yara Rodriguez. It's going to be very hard for Yara to distance fight with him so well. The leg is going to be a huge factor for Shikaze winning that fight. I think he beats Brian Ortega as well. Ortega's a little bit too sloppy. Even this 2.0 version, he's not clean enough to fight Shikaze. And he can't brawl with Shikaze. Shikaze is much faster than him. He hits very hard as well. He has better timing and precision. He's overall a better kickboxer. And Ortega, I don't think, could take him to the ground. Now, Max Holloway. This is the fight I want to see. And a lot of people say that Max Holloway is just too good. You know, he's number one. He's the best featherweight in the world. Styles make fights. If there's anybody who can outstrike Max Holloway, it is Giga Shikadze. And I would probably have to say that Shikadze might beat Holloway in the striking. That's why the fight is so competitive. Because Holloway does have the veteran experience. He's very tough. He's very durable. He could do things against Shikadze that Shikadze is not used to coming up against. And honestly, the biggest thing giving Holloway a chance of victory in that fight is his cardio. Shikadze looks like he'll slow down in the 4th and 5th rounds. And that's where Holloway would probably put it on him. I would say that Shikadze would beat Holloway for most of the first three rounds. And then it all comes down to if Shikadze can survive for the fourth and fifth. That's what it comes down to at the end of the day, in my opinion. So it is up in the air because I don't see Shikadze finishing Holloway. That's a very competitive fight. And then Giga Shikadze versus Alexander Volkanovsky. Volkanovsky can fall into some of those long counter shots. And he might get pressured into one. But what will cause the difference 
is if Volkanovski could take him to the ground, who is probably the best wrestler out of the top five. So in that aspect, I will have to go with Volkanovski. I think he has the best chance out of the top five to beat Shikadze. I think with a Michael abstinence, do you think Conor still beats Paul in a boxing match? Yes. A healthy Conor McGregor would beat Jake Paul in a boxing fight for sure, 100%. And then we go to the members. First question by John Morgan. Oh, I got confused for a second. How would a young and consistent Michael Johnson do against the top five in the lightweight division? So, prime Michael Johnson, who's on his game, who has time after time been shown to fight against the best fighters in the world and do well against them. Michael Johnson versus Islam Makashev. I gotta go with Makashev for sure, but it's not gonna be as dominant as when Habib beat Johnson. It's mainly because of the difference in styles. Makashev is not as aggressive with his grappling, as top-heavy with his grappling, with ground and pound and all that stuff. He's not as dangerous as Habib when it comes to the ground. But he's a better striker defensively, and he's more aware. That fight would pretty much be like Makashev not getting hit on the feet as much as Habib did, but at the same time not dominating Michael Johnson the same way Habib did on the ground. Michael Johnson versus Michael Chandler. I can see Michael Johnson winning. Chandler really wings his punches into shots and gives his chin to the opponent. Michael Johnson, we know, is faster than Chandler is, and he has one-shot knockout power, especially as a counterpuncher as well. I mean, remember, he knocked out Dustin Poirier with one punch moving backwards pretty much. And Chandler honestly doesn't have the best chin. Chandler can possibly wrestle his way to a victory, but at the same time, Michael Johnson in his prime had good takedown defense. Remember, he stuffed every single takedown against Benil Dariush. A lot of people forgot about that. So I would probably have to go with Michael Johnson. Benil Dariush versus Michael Johnson? I gotta go with Benil Dariush. He beat, John he beat a prime Michael Johnson before, and Dariush has gotten so much better. Michael Johnson versus Justin Gaethje. Gotta go with Gaethje again. It'll be another war, but I think Gaethje would earn a knockout faster than he did last time. Dustin Poirier. Now, I think Poirier will have a tough first round. I think Johnson will start exploding for that left hand at every given moment as Poirier is trying to pressure his way in for his combinations. I still see Dustin have a hard time covering distance without getting tagged. And we all know that Dustin's not going to be able to distance box with Michael Johnson. Perhaps mixing up the wrestling with the boxing would relieve Dustin of some of the issues on the feet. And in that sense, he could probably rise up from the takedown in case it does get defended. And then he exits into his boxing range to land his combinations and overwhelm Michael Johnson. Charles Oliveira. Now that's another interesting fight. It depends if Oliveira's wrestling is good enough to take him to the ground. If he has to strike with Michael Johnson, that's going to be a tough one for Oliveira. He doesn't move his head and gets the fastest puncher in the division, who's also a southpaw. The light kicks aren't necessarily going to be there for Oliveira. If Johnson could blitz his way in, he can starch Oliveira 100%. It all comes down to if Oliveira could take him to the ground. And honestly, I can see Oliveira struggling there. I can see Michael Johnson beating Oliveira, but I can see the other way as well. That's probably the most competitive fight up there. They'll go to Arik Rayford. Hey Weasel, I was curious how do you think a prime Floyd Mayweather Jr. would do against a prime Hearns, Duran, Hagler, Leonard, and Pac-Man? I think he definitely beats Duran and Leonard. I think he just outright beats Pacquiao and not the most difficult fight in the world, but he will struggle against Hagler and Hearns, especially against Tommy Hearns. The reach advantage is so massive and the one-shot knockout power. I don't see Mayweather hurting Hearns. And I could just see Hearns winning on the scorecards, keeping Mayweather at a distance, keeping him on the defense for the most part, jabbing to the body, jabbing up to the top, and eventually where Mayweather decides to engage a bit more to get inside of that reach. I could see where it could make the fight a little bit more even, but I could also see Mayweather getting countered by the right straight as well. Your next question, you own a loan shark, a large amount of cash, and he sent Francis on all the PEDs money can buy. Which fighter throughout history do you pick to defend you also with added juice? I guess Surreal Gone. Surreal Gone will start moving around and distract Francis enough for me to run away. And also, do you know where I could find a pair of 2XL MMA gloves? Uh, ask Shane Carwin, I think he still has his. They literally had to make custom-made gloves for Shane Carwin because of how big his hands were. Then we go to 2K underscore Jai. This is an interesting question. 
Do you think people are all underestimating Eljo in the rematch with Jan? I know he was being beat in the first fight, but I rewatched his fight with Munoz and he kept a way higher pace and didn't gas nearly as bad as he did against Jan, or is Jan just that good? I agree with you that people are underestimating Eljo in the rematch. Eljo was not completely out of that fight. People have to remember that he actually won a round against Jan, and on one of the judges' scorecards, he was winning the fight. Just jamming up on the output, just throwing things at Jan's face, was enough to get him points on the scorecards. I mean, nothing was really landing, nothing was really affecting Jan too much. It's just that all the activity for Sterling was, pr was pretty much filling all the time that the round had, up until Patreon start to download the data and start picking out the openings every time Aljamain Sterling acted. And that's where it comes to that Piotr Jan is too good. It doesn't mean that Sterling can't win another round. It doesn't mean that Sterling can't make some things work. But at the end of the day, Piotr Jan is too good for Aljamain Sterling. It's going to be very hard to see Sterling beat Jan in a complete fight. Eljo has to rely on his output, but with that pace... It's going to expend a lot of energy, man. And that was the big thing that I didn't really know about going into the fight. I knew Eljo was going to have a chance with his pace, but I just don't know how long he was going to be able to keep that up. And that goes into the rematch as well. Yes, against Munoz, he was able to keep a high pace and then gas is bad. But you also have to remember that Munoz doesn't pressure as well. He sits in front of your punches a lot. And Jan was able to get in his face, land some big shots, and also take him down like 20 times. How many times did he trip him? The pressure, the stress that comes out of all of that, it takes a toll on a fighter, man. So in the rematch, I don't see Eljo able to go five rounds with Jan like that. And if he cannot keep up that pace, Jan is going to bulldoze him again. Oh, and there's the whole thing that Eljo May Sterling is the champion going into this one. He knows who was winning that fight. 100% that's going to play into his head in the rematch. There's no way he's going to enter that fight fully confident in his skills. I have a very hard time believing that unless he can put himself in that much of a delusional space in his head, which is actually a good thing. If he could be that delusional about himself, that would actually help his confidence in this rematch with Jan. I mean, the guy played up what happened at the end there. He did it for a reason. And then the last question go to John Jordan. I'm not one for nerfing the sport, and doing so often makes things worse. For an example, the 12-6 elbows rule. But seeing what happened to Jamal Emmer's knee makes me wonder how should we feel about leg locks or any submission that could do that kind of damage? Just part of the game or no? It's part of the game. It's the whole thing with the oblique kick and the low side kicks that people have been talking about. It's part of the game. People are confusing that the damage from a certain technique is not what makes it banned or what should make it banned. It's how effective it is. It's how overpowered it is in the sport. The flying knee is one of the most horrendous things you can land on somebody. It's probably the most damaging thing you can do to somebody. But it's allowed because it's hard to land those. It's not easy. It's not as efficient. Efficiency is what holds this intact. If low side kicks or leg locks was happening all the time and it was super easy to do and it was causing that sort of damage and there's like no way to get around it there's no defense to it that's when they're gonna have to look at it and be like okay maybe this shouldn't be allowed for an example stomps the reason why stomps cannot happen in mma is because it's way too easy to do it causes way too much damage and more importantly there's an environmental advantage to it because there's a cage there's a reason why it's not allowed in the ufc but it was allowed in pride a ring versus a cage changes the complete dynamic of stomps I shoot in a takedown against the cage, which is like the meta for wrestling in MMA right now. I take you to the ground, I stack on top of you, Habib style, stand above you, and just start stomping. There's nothing you could do, you're trapped against the cage. Your head is trapped on the cage, and I have a clear target down on you. What Habib and Islam Makashev and all these guys are doing, they could easily 
completely have incorporated stomps into their game and have become even more menacing fighters in the cage. Whereas in Pride, there's the ropes. You can lean your head outside the ropes and also dodge on the stomps. And what happens when they miss a stomp? They stomp to the side of your head. Now they got out of balance and gave you freedom, gave you an opening for you to rotate and shift away. Or you can attack the other leg. There's many things you can do if the opponent misses a stomp. The cage, though, is restricting your movement of escaping and dodging. That's why I could just stomp away. I highly recommend you guys going and watch Wes Sims versus Frank Mir. This is what I'm talking about. There's nothing you can do. Wes Sims stands above Frank Mir, up against the cage. He is holding onto it, and he just starts stomping down on Mir. He got DQ'd for it, but that's the perfect example as to why stomps are not allowed in the UFC. Other than that, man... There's not much else. I mean, leg locks and little side kicks, man, they're not as efficient as people make them out to be. They're very easily countered. And ironically, both those techniques put the user in a very vulnerable position. What happens to a lot of fighters who try to go for the leg lock? They get hammer fists into oblivion. What can happen to fighters when they throw low side kicks? If the fighter sidesteps it, that fighter throwing the sidekick is done. But very good question, man. And then we go to the public questions. We're going to go to the most liked comments, and that's going to go to, oh, wow, actually five hours ago. Adam Kelly, a lot of people like your question. I wonder what it is. Hey, Weasel, it has been said that Nate Diaz doesn't lose. He only runs out of time. Do you think this is true? And if rounds and fights were unlimited until knockout or submission, who do you think will be the champ in each weight class? Yes, I heard the great Farasa Hobby say the same thing. And I can see it, man. Nate Diaz does not gas out. He could take all your shots. He keeps throwing punches at you. He doesn't stop. If there's any fighter who it looks like they can last forever and be dangerous as long as possible, it'd probably be Nate Diaz. A lot of people point out to uh, Colby Covington, but Colby doesn't have that necessary power or finishing ability the way Nate Diaz does. I would love to say Tony Ferguson would have been one of them as well, but the fact that Tony puts himself in harm's way so many times, Nate is a lot more defensively savvy, or at least fundamentally compared to Tony Ferguson. Nate is not going to get hit as many times, and he has a better chin than Tony. Tony's a lot of heart, and he's able to withstand damage, which makes him a very hard fighter to beat in a five-round fight. But in terms of unlimited, if there's a fighter who can keep up that pace with Tony Ferguson, they're going to be able the catch on the way Justin Gaethje did for the long haul and Gaethje was not tired at all doing it. Habib would probably be the other fighter. I would say Habib might be one of the most dangerous fighters in an unlimited fight as well. He would probably actually be the best fighter in the world when it comes to an unlimited fight. But definitely Nate Diaz is a guy who doesn't lose. He just runs out of time. I agree with that 100%. How many fights has he been in where he's losing the fight and then he's winning the fifth round and it looks like there's more time, more rounds, he would win the fight. Happening as Conor McGregor. People say he could have finished off Leon Edwards if there was more rounds. People say the whole thing with Jorge Masvidal. And these are some of the best fighters in the world, man. But who would be the champ of each division if there was no time limit? Heavyweight division is Surreal Gone, 100%. Light heavyweight, I'll say, is Magomed Ankalaev. Middleweight is Israel Adesanya. Welterweight is Kamaru Usman. Honestly, it doesn't even look that different. Lightweight, I'll say, is Islam Makhachev. Featherweight is Max Holloway. Bantamweight is Piotr Jan. Flyweight, I'll say, Brennan Moreno as well. Women's bantamweight, Amanda Nunes. Women's flyweight Shevchenko and women's strawweight I probably say Yuan Yuan Jacek so most of the champions would be the same that just opened my eyes as to how many of these champions have crazy good cardio besides Francis Aljamain Sterling and Rose Namajunas every other champion has insane cardio think about a dirty sways what fight can bring back the old Tony? As in, does he fight someone like Nate, or does he have to go as far as someone who is unranked to re-energize himself? Keep up the great work, man. I don't think we get the old Tony back. Too much brain damage, too long in the tooth. The guy's like, what, 38 years old in the lightweight division now? I think Tony's done. I think as, as sad as it is, that Justin Gaethje beat down with something else. If there's anybody who can find a way to re-energize themselves and bring themselves back into their prime, it probably would be Tony Ferguson that could find a way. But... I just don't see it. It's nothing that he can necessarily do. It's just the damage that was done to him. 
If he fights someone like Nate Diaz, I think Nate beats him. Whereas a prime Tony Ferguson destroys Nate. It wouldn't even be that close. I think what's next for Tony, it depends on the questions he gives himself. Does he want to be a champion again and rejuvenate his career? Or does he just want to make money at his older age like everybody else is doing? If he wants to make money, try to fight Nate Diaz. Go up to welterweight. Try to fight Conor McGregor. That's a fight that can absolutely happen. Conor is doing not too great these days in MMA. A fight with Tony Ferguson would make a lot of sense. Tony at this point, he deserves money. Chase these money fights. Chase these names in the sport. Because frankly, Tony is also a name that a lot of people know. The more he keeps chasing the title, the more he keeps chasing fighting ranked contenders, the more people forget about him. Because everybody just sees him getting dominated. But if he goes out there and fights the Conor McGregor's and the Nate Diaz's and the Nick Diaz's and the Robbie Law, like all these other older guys who can draw somewhat and at least make it an interesting fight for the fans, people are going to love watching him fight again. If I was in Tony Ferguson's camp, if I was his coach or mentor or whoever, I'll tell him, hey man, let's start chasing these money fights. Forget about the title. You were the champion. You were the best lightweight in the world at one point. You did so much in the sport. Let's get you some money here, man, because you're a bit older. You're 38 years old. Time to let the younger guys do their thing and time for you to get what you deserve. Because, frankly, Tony has been shunned out and kicked while down for far too long. And then with Gurmar and Klar, how do you think Connor would have done if he had to climb his way up the ranks of the lightweight division to get a title shot back in 2016 instead of getting an immediate shot at Alvarez? Do you think he still would have been champion if he had to go through the top contenders at the time, like Habib, Tony, Kevin Lee, Barboza, Gaethje, etc.? The way Connor was given a title shot immediately like that, saved him a lot of brain damage. Connor would have lost to Habib back then. Connor would have had a very hard time with Kevin Lee. And there would have been a huge beating from Tony. He would have gotten Tony a couple times, but if he's fighting the Tony Ferguson that fought RDA, which was prime Tony Ferguson, I do not see Connor lasting in that one. He could beat Barboza because of the pressure. He could beat that version of Gagey. War mode Gagey was a lot easier to hit. He would have had a good fight with Michael Johnson. That would have been a very competitive fight. So what I will say is if Connor had to climb his way up the lightweight division, I don't think he would have ever gotten that title shot. I think he would have been a top five fighter eventually, but I think he would probably float around the number five spot. Like seven, six, five, four, maybe three is the highest he gets, and that's pretty much it. And then we'll go to ZXC. If Darren Till and Kevin Holland had a pure wrestling match, who would win? Uh, that's a close one, man. I don't even know. It is true that Kevin Holland did take down Derek Brunson once, so in that aspect, you could probably say that Kevin Holland is the superior wrestler, but there is a bit of a misconception about Darren Till's wrestling. Now, I'm not saying Darren Till's the best wrestler in the world, but he's just not as bad as people say he is. Up until the Derek Brunson fight, Darren Till has been known to have good takedown defense. Who has taken Darren Till to the ground besides Derek Brunson? I mean, Robert Whitaker got him down twice, I guess, but he shot in 13 times. That tells you enough. Robert Whitaker is a good wrestler. And he had a very hard time getting down there until... And Hill also had a banged up knee in that fight too. Kelvin Gaslam got him down one out of four attempts. Masvidal got him down once, but not able to keep him down. Don Cerrone, who had very good wrestling, took him down only once, but was not able to keep him on the ground. Nicholas Dalby is probably the other fighter... Besides Derek Brunson, uses wrestling the best to neutralize Darren Till. This narrative that Darren Till is a trash wrestler is not really true. I mean, remember, he even took down Kelvin Gaslam. He took down Jorge Masvidal. People forget about that. Darren Till is not a bad wrestler by any means. He's just not as good as Derek Brunson. And it's not that Derek Brunson is super technical and skilled. Derek Brunson is strong. When that guy gets a hold of you, man, it's just different, especially if he has a size advantage like he did over Darren Till. Darren Till tried to defend it. He tried to sprawl as hard as he could. It just did not matter. That's just a pure difference in strength. There is also rumor that Darren Till went into the fight banged up. I just don't know how much I believe it when doctors are going to take a look at his knee and all that stuff. And if it was really torn like that, I don't know if the doctors would have let him fight. Then again, apparently doctors miss a lot of things. They're with a GMAC. 
What do you see as being Sterling's path to victory in the rematch with Jan, given that he looked pretty outclassed in the first fight? A lot of flopping. No, uh, pretty much what I said before. He's going to have to keep a bit of an output, but due to his gas tank, he's going to have to decrease it just a bit, enough for him to win the rounds on the scorecards. He's going to have to fight extremely technical when it comes to winning on the scorecards. That's the only way he's going to win this fight. He's not going to finish Piotrion, in my opinion, which is going to be way too difficult to do so. But to be honest, man, I don't see him being Piotrion. I don't think he has the physical abilities to do so. And do the Angelo Kaz. Predict these featherweight matchups. Cater versus Emmett. I'm going to have to go with Cater. But after the damage he took from Holloway, I don't even know how he looks anymore. I'm just going to think about the Cater that we knew and say that's the one that's going to beat Josh Emmett. Zabit versus TKZ. I got to go with Zabit. Burgos versus Tapuria. Got to go with Tapuria 100%. I'm telling you guys, I've been saying for a while now, Tapuria is going to do some great things in this division. Korean Zombie versus Giga Shikadze. I'm going to have to go with Shikadze, but that is a very good fight. Ortega versus Zabit. I'm going to have to go with Zabit. Ortega also doesn't have the greatest cardio. He does slow down now. He doesn't stop his output, but I don't see him being Zabit for the first two to three rounds. Ortega versus Cater, that's a very good fight. I'm going to have to go with Ortega, but he's going to take a lot of damage in that fight. And Volkanovski versus Max 3. I'm going to go with Max. As much as I remind people that Volkanovski won both fights against Max, I think in that third fight, Max will probably take it. Then we go to Enon Lee. Which fighter from each division would benefit the most from moving up or down a weight class? Starting from heavyweight, if he could move down, Stipe Miocic would be great at light heavyweight. It's like no one else could even move down. Everybody's so big now. For light heavyweight, I would say Jan Blachowicz moving up to heavyweight. Or even Yuri Prohaska moving up. Both those guys would do great at heavyweight. For middleweight, I honestly think that if Robert Whitaker went up to light heavyweight, he would do very good things. Guys are not going to be able to take him to the ground, and like no one can outstrike him. The only thing that he would run a problem with is the power from those guys. Whitaker doesn't have the best chin. He has good heart, but not a great chin. He could possibly eat a shot from Blahovich, Prohaska, Santos, Reyes, Ankolaev, and maybe even Uzdemir. If he runs into one of those guys' shots, he's going to be out. But skillfully, technically, I think he does better there than even Adesanya does. And I'll also have to say that uh, Kelvin Gaslam moving down to 170 would be a great thing for him. Man, if Kelvin moved down to welterweight, that would really shake up the division. Then for welterweight fighters... I would say the number one would be Colby Covington moving down to lightweight. If he could do it, I know it'd be very tough for him, but he is a lighter guy in this division. I think he weighs in the mid-180s. I mean, that's roughly the same as like Dustin Poirier. Michael Chandler weighs more than he does, I think. There's guys in the lightweight division that are even bigger than Colby. If Colby can come down to lightweight, there's not a lot of guys that could beat him, man. Oliveira would be tough for him. Gaethje would be tough for him. I think he gives everybody else their run for their money. I know a lot of people say, what about Kamar Usman at middleweight? I don't see it. Now, firstly, Usman is not that big. He seems big for the welterweight division, but people mistake in how small his legs are, first of all. He has a very big upper body, very big torso. His legs are very small, and he weighs from like the high 180s to low 190s. He'll be very small for middleweight. I mean, even Adesanya, who's on the lighter side of the middleweights, weighs 200 pounds. And let's see how Usman would really do. I don't think he beats Adesanya, to be honest. I don't think he has the strength to take him to the ground. I don't think he has the footwork to catch him. He's much shorter in every which way. Striking is nowhere near to par. I think Adesanya deals with him very well. Whitaker is his nightmare matchup. Whitaker shuts him down like nobody's business. Coles does too big, in my opinion, to take to the ground. And I don't think Usman could strike with him. Kedanir also way too big. He could put Usman's lights out. Brunson, it'd be competitive. But Brunson, I think, is still a little bit too big. These guys are just way too big. I mean, really think about it here. Whitaker, I believe, walks around in the mid-210s. Polo Costa, I've heard, is like 230. Jerick Henry's up there as well in the 220s and 230s. I mean, Usman's literally getting outsized by like 30 to 40 pounds. And then we look at the lightweights. Conor McGregor moving down to 145. That's a must move for him. He's too small for the lightweights. 
He can't hurt the guys the same way. He gets hurt much more than he did at featherweight. Connor moving down 145 is probably the biggest move. Everybody else kind of fits this division. Everybody else seems like a real lightweight who don't need to move anywhere. Then for featherweight, there's a lot of guys here who can move up. Giga Shikaze would do great at lightweight. Max Holloway could do very well. Just think about Ortega in the lightweight division. Nobody wants to go to the ground with him besides maybe Oliveira and Islam Makashev could. Nobody else wants to go down there. And just think about that. Imagine Oliveira taking down Ortega and them just going at it. That would be one of the most exciting grappling matches in a UFC fight we'd ever see. I don't think he would beat guys like Poirier and Gaethje, though. I think they're too powerful. He could probably be very powerful in the lightweight division. Ortega is a bigger guy, and he weighs around the same as lightweights do. So Ortega would be interesting at the end of the day. And then bantamweight fighters, Corey Sanigan at 145 would be very fun, man. And for flyweights, Davison Figueroa should move up to welterweight because that's what it seems like he should be fighting at. Davison up at bantamweight would be perfect. Out of all the fighters in the UFC that should be moving a division and would actually make it fun would be Davison Figueroa moving up to bantamweight. You can't think of another better move for a fighter. And for the other divisions, not much change has to be made, to be honest. I mean, some people say, what about Rose up at flyweight? She's too small. She's way too small. I mean, I think she walks around in the mid-120s. And we saw how Yuan Yon Jacek, who's bigger than Rose, did against Valentina Shevchenko. Shevchenko's just way too strong for her. And way too good at the end of the day. And honestly, that's what it really matters. Who can fight Shevchenko? Because the rest of the division is very comparable in skill. They still need to sort each other out. I think with a Michael Daras. Hey, Weasel, I've been wanting to know who is your favorite fighter. Or could you do a favor in each division? My favorite fighter at the moment is Iri Prohaska. He is a character like I've never seen before, and I love his style. He's so exciting to watch. I mean, the guy is on a what? 10-fight knockout streak. The last time he had a decision was back in 2016 in an open weight tournament. Open weight. That wasn't even his division. The last time he didn't finish somebody in the lightweight division was back in 2014. And the way he throws punches, the way he just makes things work. He's very innovative in the cage as well. He's so durable and he just knocked out Dominic Reyes. He should be one of the guys lined up for a title shot right now. That's the only thing that kind of is bittersweet. I want to see him compete again, but he also wants to wait out for the title shot and I don't blame him for that. I do like Mazudal as well. Corey Mazudal is one of my favorites. 100% Jose Aldo. I love watching him fight. Always have. Uh, Conor McGregor, I like seeing him fight in the cage, in a UFC cage, not Bellator, in a sanctioned fight. Rose Namajunas is probably my favorite female fighter. And honestly, probably my second favorite fighter, period. I would say Yur Prohaska is number one. And I would say Rose Namajunas is number two. If I go for each division, so I'll say heavyweight division is Francis Ngannou. Light heavyweight is Prohaska. Middleweight is Robert Whitaker. Welterweight, I love Santiago Ponzinibbio. I like Steven Thompson. I like Jorge Mazadal. I like Vicente Luque. It's hard for me to pick out of those fighters. Lightweight division, I like Tony Ferguson, but man, he's completely out of his prime. Out of the best guys at the moment, I would say either Charles Oliveira or Conor McGregor. For featherweight, right now it's Giga Shikadze. Bantamweight is Josie Aldo. And flyweight, I still like Davis and Figueredo. I love Brandon Moreno's personality, but if I just look at the style and the way they fight, Figueredo is so exciting to watch. One of the most exciting guys in the UFC. Women's bantamweight, I would have to say, is probably Amanda Nunes. I'm really liking Rinaldana, though. Women's flyweight, Shevchenko, 100%. I love watching her fight, just in general. And then women's strawweight is 100% Rolls Namajunas. They would have Kashiv's POV. If you could make five fantasy fights using UFC fighters in history, which ones would you make and who would win? From any time in a similar weight class, for an example, Shane Carwin versus Derek Lewis. That would be very fun to watch. So you said only UFC. I gave my MMA fight before. I would say the number one fight I can ever think of would be Fedor Emelianenko versus Daniel Cormier. But let's see from UFC fighters. I do agree that GSP and Kamaru Usman would be amazing. Anderson Silva in his prime versus Israel Adesanya would be insane. 
Shane Carmen versus Francis Ngannou, the two most powerful guys I've ever seen from heavyweight. Anderson Silva versus GSP back in the day when they're both on top of the world. And one that would be amazing, prime Robbie Lawler versus Vicente Luque. How crazy would that be? Man, that's one of them that tops the list. And then with the Hippo Samurai, I have several interesting questions to consider. Number one, which Bellator and 1FC champion would you like to see in the UFC? AJ McKee for sure. I would still like to see Patricio Pitbull. Gegard Mousasi needs to come back. And there's quite a bit of 1FC champions I'd like to see in the UFC. Bibiana Fernandez in the featherweight division. Adriano Morais, the guy who knocked out Demetrius Johnson. would love to see him in the bantamweight division. Of course, Reiner DeRitter in the light heavyweight division. He's currently the two-division champion over there at one championship. Christian Lee in the welterweight division. That guy is a finisher man would just love to see him get into some crazy fights in the UFC as well I highly recommend keeping your eye on Christian Lee man he's only 23 years old and he's just shutting everybody out I'd probably say for me that's like the number two to number three guy I would love to see in the UFC right now number one would be AJ McKee and then your second question are there any contenders in strawweight that could do well in women's flyweight no not really I mean they could do well against everybody else besides Shevchenko nobody from strawweight beats Shevchenko number three what are some of the top unranked prospects in the middleweight division Thanks to keep up the great content. Thank you so much, man. Well, I did make a few videos about Phil Haas. I've always been very high on him. He's very explosive, good striking, extremely good wrestling. And he did not have an easy start in the UFC. Of course, there's Hamza Shemaev. There is Drikas Duplessis. That guy's very good. He just makes things work. You're never too sure when you're watching him. It looks like things are going to go south very quickly, but then he just makes it work. Oh, and where he lost to Roberto Saldic? Do not worry about that. Roberto is absolutely a monster. That's the KSW champion. When I made my uh, MMA prospects video, I think two years ago or so, Roberto Saldic was one of the biggest prospects that I chose. Then we go to Jackson Whirl. How does Darintel match up at welterweight? He's mentioned going back down. Also, do you think that specialist game is more popular in MMA now? Usman and Habib's wrestling, Adesanya striking, Charles Oliveira's jiu-jitsu game, etc. Keep it up with the content looking great. How does Darintel match up at welterweight? To be honest, right now, as of what I see, I see him doing similar to how he did last time. But the thing about Darren Till is we cannot write him off. He's only 28 years old. Yes, he's been fighting some of the most elite fighters in the UFC, from welterweight to middleweight. But think about it like this. Where was Charles Oliveira when he was 28 years old? Charles Oliveira lost to Paul Felder. That was when he was 28 years old. He was not doing well in his career. He was 2-4 and four in his last 6 fights back when he lost to Paul Felder. That's not that different to what Darintel is experiencing right now. And then Charles Oliveira got like a 9 win streak finishing everybody became the champion. He's 31 years old turning 32 next month. If Darintel is preservant enough, we cannot write him off. He's almost in the exact same seat that Charles Oliveira sat in 4 years ago. So I don't want to say for sure where he's going to end up, but... What I see right now from his current skills without looking in the future of how he's going to progress, I can see him being around number 7 to number 5. The best guy I think he can beat is probably Leon Edwards, who's number 3. And as for our specialists, the meta in MMA right now, they are not. I would not classify Usman, Habib, Adesanya, and Oliveira as specialists. A specialist is a one-dimensional fighter, but that one dimension that they have is very dangerous. Damian Maya is a one-dimensional fighter. He doesn't have many great things about him besides jiu-jitsu. His takedowns aren't that great. Striking's not that great. But if he gets through the ground, you're done. Israel Adesanya has a good takedown defense game. It's just when you're bigger and stronger than he is, it's hard for him to shake you off. Usman has developed much better boxing, and he's winning because of his boxing. Habib, honestly, is good at everything. He's not clean in his striking. His punches and kicks don't look pretty, but they're very effective. He's fast with his strikes. He's very composed in the feet. He's a decent striker for what he does. He's a very good wrestler. He's a very good jiu-jitsu artist. And he's a very good judoka. Charles Oliveira is extremely well-rounded. It's not just jiu-jitsu. Yes, his BJJ is 
the most menacing in the division, but he's a great striker. He's an amazing wrestler. People don't realize how good Oliveira's wrestling is. He is definitely one of the better wrestlers in the top 10. So none of these guys, I believe, are specialists. And what that means is, if none of the champions are specialists, even Francis Agano is mixing up his game now. It tells you that that is not the popular thing in MMA. It was like a few years ago. Five to three years ago, being a specialist was where it was at. Now you got to be well-rounded. You got to have that specialist skill set, but you have to add on to it other styles. That's the only way it's going to work these days. MMA is evolving. Like Giga Shikadze, people can actually label him as a specialist because he hasn't shown much else. Yes, he almost caught uh, Edson Barboza with a darts choke. He hasn't been super successful with anything else besides his kickboxing. As of right now, we can characterize him as a specialist and he's doing very well, but we got to see when he fights a wrestler. That's when that's when the opinion about Giga Shikaze changes. It's a big reason why I believe that Volkanovski will be a, a more difficult task for him than Holloway will be. And that's the end of the podcast, guys. Amazing questions this week. I apologize if I couldn't get to all of them. But there will be a prediction video for this weekend's card, and I'll see you guys then.